God is good all the time. And he's being good to us today, isn't he? I thought I'd let you know, um, I know it's Christmas time, <laughs> but I want to dream just one more Sunday, okay? <laughs> and then next Sunday, let's, um, <clears throat> I'll, we'll talk about uh, the birth of Jesus and, and all of that. Uh, but I wanted to continue on with this theme that we've been working on about daring to dream. A lot is uh, known about the church at Ephesus. In fact, uh, I would say that probably as much is known about the church at Ephesus as the one in Jerusalem or any other church in our New Testaments that are mentioned there. The founding of that church is recorded in Acts chapter 18 and 19, and we get some details there. Paul spent something like three years in Ephesus during his third missionary journey. Talks about all the things he went through there, how the two years he spent in the hall of Tyrannus, preaching and teaching, and kind of set up a little, what I call a preaching school. He, from there, he was sending out people into the area of Asia, Asia Minor. Those are two obvious places you would look in your Bibles to find out about uh, the church at Ephesus. And, of course, we could look at the epistle that was written to the Ephesians. We have a book in our New Testaments called Ephesians, and that's about the, book, the church at Ephesus. You might not realize that... Uh, the letters to First and Second Timothy are also about the church at Ephesus. Timothy is at Ephesus when he receives these letters, and Paul mentions specifically. He said, "You know, I, I left you there. I, I, I made it so I wanted you to be there." And most of the things we're reading about is in, in the background of that church at Ephesus. And lastly, we do have a very short letter to the Ephesian church in the Book of Revelation. It was read for us this morning written about 95 A.D. The church at Ephesus has existed about 40 or 50 years at this point, something like that. And in 95 A.D., the church at Ephesus seems to be doing fairly well. I want you to look at, with me at Revelation 2, verses 1 through 3. just want to talk about these words for a moment or two. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write. And by the way, uh, let's just say this. The word angel... Uh, in its widest sense, means messenger. And possibly all that he's talking about, not a, a, an angelic being, a spiritual being, but maybe the, the person who did a lot of the teaching at the church at Ephesus, the preacher, or maybe one of the elders. But to the messenger, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write these things. The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. And we know who that is because earlier on in chapter 1 of Revelation, that's all connected up with Jesus, okay? So we know who's actually giving this message. Anyway, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands says this, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance, and that you cannot tolerate evil men and that you put to test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not. And you found them to be false, and you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. So here we have the, the, the opening words about the church at Ephesus. It's kind of a commendation. And what, to, what Jesus says to this church is, he says, I know your deeds. I know you've been busy. I know your toil. I know your perseverance. You're hanging in there. You're staying with it. And, and, and when it came time to defend the gospel against people who might come in and 
and, and, and perverted in some or the other, you, you put a stop to that. You, uh, you, you held the line. Anyway, in a lot of ways, it's a good church. It's a great church. And the word that I see here as I look at this church, it's a busy church. It's been faithful to the word. It's been vigilant. But it's a busy church. There are programs, and there's good works going on here. There's a busyness here. This church is alive. But then comes Revelation 2 and 4. That's the message continues on. And there's a but here. And the but is pretty important. But. I have this against you, that you've left your first love. And so uh, outwardly, the church is doing fine. Inwardly, there were some problems. You know, God can see on the inside of things where we can't. And so we, we, look, we might look at this church and say, hey, that church over there in Ephesus is doing fine. Look, they're busy. Look at them. And they held the line on, 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 on doctrine. They did not let false apostles come in, lead them astray. It's a good church, busy church. But there was a, uh, something going on here that maybe hadn't registered with the people who observed. And that is that they had left their first love. And by first love, I think we're talking about the, about the intensity, the joy, the excitement of love which comes at the beginning of a person's Christian life. When someone becomes a child of God, I know you all have experienced this, that, man, uh, you're, you're ready. <laughs> you can't learn enough. You can't do enough. You can't meet enough. You can't sing enough. You can't. It's just all there, and, and it's what you want, and you're hungry to do, uh, do the things that would be pleasing to God. And so they kind of lost this. Well, God had a dream for this church. He had a dream for every member in this church. But these members would never reach their God-intended potential as Christians, and this church would never reach its God-intended potential as a church unless this but was taken care of lest first love was restored. They had fallen into the trap of substituting busyness for real spiritual connection with the Lord. That's what this lesson is about here today. It's about substituting busyness for connection with the Lord. And the Lord's concerned about them. I mean, when this letter is written about 95 A.D., when, when God gives this letter to the Ephesian church, sends him this message. Persecution has already started in, in Asia, in the province of Asia. That's at the very uh, western end of Asia Minor to today. That's where it would be, right up against the, uh, the Mediterranean Sea. It, persecution has already started. In fact, this was an area that was going to be very a hotbed of persecution for the church. And God looked down the way here, and he saw it coming. There's some hard times coming. And Ephesus might be able to coast in the good times. I mean, they're, they're busy, and they're, they're holding the line, and, and they're vigilant, and, and there's just a lot of good things happening, a lot of good programs and all of that. But when God looked inside of this church, in their hearts, there was a problem. They had lost their first love. They weren't going to be able to make it. And so God calls them to repentance, Revelation chapter 2 and verse 5. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent. And do the deeds you did at first, or else I'm coming to you, and I will remove your lampstand out of its place, unless you repent. So God calls them to repentance. He sees a problem here, and he wants them to get it taken care of. And he tells, he tells the church exactly what the problem is. He said, I want you to repent, and here's what you have to do. I want you to restore. I want you to get back to the things you did at first. Get back to your first works. 
And it's interesting. It, when, when first love is lost, what you have to do is get back to first works. If you can get back to first works, then first love can be rekindled. And so there's a connection made here between things that these people were doing at the beginning of their Christian lives as opposed to things that they were doing at this present time. And, it had, and those, that change that had happened with them had resulted in them losing their first love. So God has a dream for us. God has a dream for the Sunshine Church. He's got a dream for every family that's here. He's got a dream for every member that's sitting here today and everyone who says they're a part of the Sunshine Church. But some of us may never fulfill God's dream for us if we begin to substitute religious busyness for spiritual connection. How did Ephesus get in this shape? And I'm going to describe to you uh, in two different ways a process that you, all of us, are way too familiar with. It comes in four steps. I've seen this over and over and over again, and I've experienced it to some degree myself. First of all comes the big change. That's the day that we become children of God. And we're filled with enthusiasm and zeal, and we're thirsty for the word, hungry for the word, we're eager to come to church. We want to pray. We want to volunteer. We'll just do anything. We're just ready to do anything and everything for the Lord because, uh, because he's our Savior. And he's done something for us that we couldn't do for ourselves. And we're grateful. And it's out of love and gratitude and just joy that all this comes. That's the big change. The big change leads us to make uh, what I'll call the big commitment. I want to use the word big here. What I really mean is overcommitment. And we're just so eager to, uh, to be involved in, and, and to help and to serve and to be obedient and to, to worship and to meet and all this that we tend to overcommit. And once we've overcommitted, it's kind of embarrassing to start backing down, isn't it? And so we, we start looking for shortcuts that other people might not notice. We start looking for things to eliminate without causing anyone any alarm or disappointing them in any way. And the things that we have to maintain are the things that are seen, the things that we do, the things that they would be obvious to other people. It's our public self. And the things that tend to go at this particular time are the things that are unseen, the things that only happen in our private time, things that only God would know about, but nevertheless very important. Then comes... The, the third step here is the big chill. Okay, we got the big, the big change, the big commitment. Now we got the big chill. And then when, and when the big chill comes, we have discovered that the private things were more important than what we realized. That's what really fueled our relationship with the Lord. That's where our joy and our strength and our power and our zeal to be Christians came from. And without that fuel, that's what fueled the relationship with, our, with the Lord. And without that fuel... Our relationship begins to cool, and love cools, and our relationship with God grows distant and cold, but we're still doing all the stuff we did before. And then comes the big charade. Because we work diligently to maintain the commitments, to do all the stuff. We don't want anybody to get concerned about us, and we kind of want to prove to ourselves that, hey, it's still good, and we're, we're still, I'm still a Christian, and I'm still doing God's will, and, and all this. But there's no heart in it. 
and we're busy doing a whole bunch of good things and wonderful things, and people are actually being blessed by the things we're doing. I mean, that's, that's kind of deceitful because we're able to bless other people because we're doing good things, but there's something missing inside of us. We're feeling kind of empty on the inside. And so we get to that fourth state, and I'll call it the big charade. I think that's what is happening with a lot of the members at the Ephesian church. It just got to the point where that's, that was it. I know that, uh, and I won't say I know, but I think probably every Christian here has experienced this to one degree or another. And we have to be careful of this. We have to fight it. We might even have to learn how to say no to some of the things or even drop some things that we're doing right now that we might get back to first works. Now, I'm going to talk about that in a little bit, but I want to go one, one step further with this. This process that I've described to you that involves uh, an individual also works to some extent at the church level. And, I, and that's where God is concerned. He's talking to these people as a group. He's talking to them as a church. And this thing of losing first love applies to a church, getting cold. Someone has a great idea for an event, a ministry. And they can just see how this thing is really going to work. I mean, this is going to bless a lot of people. It's going to be a positive thing for the church. It might even get some people interested enough that they would want to come, and then we're going to have opportunities with them to do things with them. And, and you know, just, uh, you know, hey, it's a great idea. And you begin to promote that idea. And first comes the big idea, okay? And we're all excited, and, and we start recruiting people. We get plenty of help, and there's lots of participation. And, and we have the thing, and, and, and the response is good. And, man, that, that's wonderful. And we think it might even be better next year if we make this change or that change or we add this or do something different or have it in a different place or whatever or, or handle it a little bit different. And so, uh, without hesitation, we attach the word annual. That is probably the biggest mistake the church has ever made, is to hang the word annual on anything. Can I get an amen? <laughs> amen! <laughs> it is a trap, <laughs> and you don't want to go there. <laughs> I get excited about this stuff, okay? I'm sorry. <laughs> so the second year comes, and it's pretty good. We make the changes, still get lots of help, good participation, pretty good response, you know. It was lots of work, but we had plenty of help. But it wasn't quite as good as what we thought it would be when we got to the end of the first year. Because we just knew what we, had, what we could do that would perfect that thing and just make it work like a, a well-oiled sewing machine. So that was the second year. Then comes the third year. Now, this is starting to feel a little bit like work. People not quite as excited to volunteer this year as they were before. So there are fewer people to accomplish the same amount of work. We have the, we have the event, or we do the ministry, or whatever it is, but the shine is definitely off on the third year. Then comes the fourth year. It's not just feeling like work, it is work. We're definitely looking for shortcuts now. We're desperate for people to help. And what we keep hearing is, well, we're going to be out of town. And, oh, we've got visitors coming in that weekend. Or, uh, 
Oh, let me check the date. I'm sorry, I've got to wash my arms on that date. <laughs> Stuff like that is what you start hearing. Okay? And so, in the fourth year comes the big struggle to get the logistics of the event, the ministry, all set up. Because now, we, you know, we've kind of faded. The enthusiasm all has kind of faded. And by the, time, uh, by the time of the end of the event, there's a few people who are exhausted. They're glad it's over. His response wasn't all, really all that good. It tenses down. But we made a big mistake back in year one. We hung the word annual on it. So now we're depressed because we know year five's coming up and year six and year seven and year eight, and we don't see any end in sight. And the original purpose of the event has kind of gotten lost. There was a spiritual purpose. There was a good idea. There was something that we had in mind that would be a benefit to the kingdom of God. But that's kind of gotten lost because there's no energy left for follow-through or whatever. And so, uh, let me just put it this way. Uh, Over the course of time, listen to this. Over the course of time, a church ends up consumed by a bunch of programs that no one is really excited about and no one has the energy to follow through on to the original spiritual purpose. That, that could be repeated a few times, okay? Over the course of time, I've seen this over and over and over again until I'm just sick. Over the course of time, A church ends up consumed by a bunch of programs that no one is really excited about and no one has the energy to follow up on for its original spiritual purpose. So, busy, 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 busy. We've lost our first love. Busy, 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 busy. From the outward standpoint, people look and say, wow, that church is busy. Look what they're doing, and they're standing for the truth. And man, it's just all right. It's good. Lost the first love. Busy, but just dying on the inside. The church at Ephesus was busy, so busy doing good things. But they were just going through the motions. They had lost their first love. They lost their first enthusiasm. They lost their first joy, their first excitement. And God calls them to repent. I'm going to put the verses back up again. Revelation 2, 4 and 5. But I have this against you that you have left your first love. Therefore remember from where you have fallen and repent. And do the deeds you did at first. Or else I'm coming to you and I will remove your lampstand out of its place. Unless you repent. What is God's answer for what's wrong with that, the Ephesian church. I think we might be interested. We might want to know. He says, do the first works. Isn't that what he says right there in fifth verse? Repent and do the deeds you did at first. Well, what are the first works? If we're going to regain first love, we have to do the first works. What are the first works? And I've thought about this, and the first place that came to my mind was the stuff that shows up in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. We sometimes referred to these as first principles. 
And so in Hebrews 6, 1 and 2, this is what it reads there. Therefore, leaving the, the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection. Let us go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms, of laying on of hands, of resurrection of the dead, of eternal judgment. These are all things that would come up in the, in the first century as, as people were preaching to the lost. These are the kinds of things that would be all, all right there at the time of conversion. Preach about faith and repentance from dead works, about baptism, about the laying on of hands. And, 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 and in the first century, the apostles could lay their hands on someone and give them gifts of the Spirit. But, and, and when they became Christians, uh, there was an expectation that that would happen. About the resurrection of the dead, about eternal judgment, all that stuff. That's first principle stuff. That's, that all happens at, at the very beginning, at conversion. But, you know, I don't think... The letter to the church at Ephesus here in Revelation chapter 2 is not about that. He's not telling them to get converted again. But there were things they did early in their Christian lives that fed them spiritually and made them strong from the inside out and sustained their joy, sustained their love, their faith, and all that. There were things that they did that fueled that relationship, that connection. And I want to go to Acts chapter 2 and verse 42. This is a verse about people who, well, you know the, the, the chapter of Acts chapter 2. There are 3,000 people who become Christians in Acts chapter 2. In verse 38, they, they repent and they're baptized. And there were 3,000 people added to it. And, then, and here is Luke's comment about, about those people. And it says, and they continued steadfastly. This is the stuff they started to do just as soon as they were converted. And it's the stuff they kept on doing ever after. They continued steadfastly. They never quit this. They worked this. They worked this program, okay? And, and Luke is trying to tell us something here that we need to understand. I think these are the first works. The first works that get us back to first love. And so we're looking at Acts 2.42. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Luke is telling us by example, or what God is telling us by the example of all these Christians, that we ought to continue steadfastly in these things. And these are the first works that the Ephesian church had to go back to, the things that they had begun to neglect. That was creating a problem for them. They were busy, busy, busy. And they were sound. They, they were vigilant. They were watching out for false doctrine. But they'd kind of let this stuff uh, fall by the wayside. First of all, the apostles' doctrine. That is teaching from God. We're talking about the Word. And, and, and the Word in, the, in our New Testaments, we're told the Word is like our food for our souls. Jesus said this in the, in, in the temptation of Matthew chapter 4. He says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. He says, hey, you've got to have food. You can't live. You're, you're not really living if you're just eating physical food. He says you need spiritual food, and every man, we're going to live by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God, their spiritual life, in taking in the word. So that's one thing. Then we have this thing called fellowship. That would be uh, like association with, with, with other Christians. And, you know, if, if the only association you have with Christians is just this one time a week, then that's, well, that's something. But, you know, some of you come here and it's like you can't wait to get out the back door. 
or side door or something. Fellowship. Make a connection with people of like mind. When you become a Christian, you get a whole new set of friends. God gives you a whole new set of friends. And he wants you to get to know them. And to let them influence you and to encourage you and to help you become the person that he has in mind. Then we have the breaking of bread. And I I think probably, I I can't say this absolutely for sure, but if if I were betting money, I'd bet that this is a reference to the Lord's Supper. I I really think it is. There's, There's other things that can be said about it, but I think this breaking of bread is a reference to the Lord's Supper. In which... Not only is there a remembrance and a celebration of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, but a self-examination. Let a man examine himself and so eat. In other words, there's something that's supposed to happen here. We're supposed to discern the body to think about that. And that, that would happen in, in, one of our, in our assembly here this morning, for instance. And then comes the matter of prayer. All of these things are basic to maintaining a relationship with God. When first works are restored, first love is rekindled. The problem is, is that over time, we tend to let some or all of these four fall by the wayside. We get busy. Sometimes, so, we just get busy with life. And we talk about that all the time, about, hey, you're all wound up and all this stuff out here over there, and you're just too busy. But you can get too busy with stuff here, which is exactly the problem at the Ephesian church. They were busy, but they had lost their first love. When first works are restored, first love is rekindled. Sometimes we just, like I say, we get busy with life, and sometimes we just get bogged down in religious busyness. We're dying on the inside, but we're okay because we're still busy. That's how we tell ourselves that we're okay. We're busy. We're still doing it, keeping our commitments and all that. It's a dangerous place to be. And that's why God calls these people to repentance. He says, you've got to repent. You need to do the first works so that you can get back first love and, 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 and serve in the way that I want you to. And God's dream for his people, first of all, is that they would have a... a, God's dream is for people who have a real connection with him. God's dream for us is not to see how busy he can get us. God's dream depends, first of all, on us being connected with him. And if that's not there, nothing else that you do is going to matter. And that's why God is so concerned about this church. Now, Jesus set the example for us. Jesus was as busy as anybody could be in his earthly ministry. But he did manage to strike a little bit of a balance, which I think would be instructive for us. I want you to look at at Mark chapter 1, starting at verse 32. And, And this is at the end of a day. Jesus has been in the synagogue. He's done some teaching there. He stopped by at Peter's house. He heals Peter's uh, mother-in-law and gets her, uh, gets her back on her feet. And there's some other things. He's, he's doing some things all day long. And, and finally, we're at the end of this busy day. When evening came, after the sun had set, they began bringing to him all who were ill and those who were demon-possessed. So we thought we were done, but we're not. 
And the whole city had gathered at the door, and he healed many who were ill with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he was not permitting the demons to speak because they knew who he was. And so we're at the end of a, of a long, busy day, and it's not over yet because they're pushing, pushing, pushing. This is what it says. When Jesus, Jesus finally didn't get to go to bed that night, and it says in verse 35 and 36, in the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, he left the house, and he went away to a secluded place and was praying there. Simon and his companions searched for him. Though Jesus understood something here, and there's something that's being conveyed to us. He's so busy, 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 busy. But you have to take care of the inside. If you don't take care of the inside, then all the busyness doesn't mean anything. You've lost. A little later on in Mark chapter 6, you have uh, early on in Mark chapter 6, Jesus has sent the 12 disciples out on a little tour through, uh, through Israel. And they've gone out and they've preached and they've taught and they've done a lot of, a lot of different things. Uh, and they've been by themselves. Jesus hadn't been with them. So when they finally get back to him, I don't know how long this took, a week, two weeks, three weeks, a month, whatever it was, but they finally all come back, and they're all in his presence. And it says here, Mark 6, 30 and 32, the apostles gathered together with Jesus, and they reported to him all that they had done and taught. Well, we've been busy, Lord. We've just been preaching up a storm, and we've been healing people, and, man, this has been great. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a secluded place and rest a while. For there were many people coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. And they went away in the boat to a secluded place by themselves. Now, I've got to tell you something. Going to church is always good, and praying is always good, and, and, and serving people and doing good things for people and being obedient you know, in that way, being a servant to other people. That, that, that's always good. I want to tell you something. Sometimes the most spiritual thing that you can do is just go and sit down and rest. And Jesus knew that about his disciples. He said, okay, you've been busy enough. Just, you guys just come with me and let's sit down and let's have some time together. So they took that boat to a secluded place. Now, I've pointed this out many times, but one more time isn't going to hurt. Those four basics back in Acts chapter 2, verse 42. Let's go back there. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship in the breaking of bread and in prayers. If you will just get yourself to church on a regular basis, those four things are covered. Have you noticed that? If you just get here for Sunday morning worship, for this assembly right here, at a minimal level, every one of those things will get taken care of in some way or the other. Now, we're hoping for a whole lot more out of every Christian than that. But at a minimal level, if you can just get here each week for this time, at a minimal level, you'll be hitting those, those four bases. And as I say, of course, we're hoping for a lot more than that. And I've pointed that out many times to many people. But there's, there's something else I want you to notice about these you look at these four things, apostles' doctrine, fellowship, breaking bread, and in prayers. Two of them are things that you have to come to church to do. You can't have fellowship if you don't meet with Christians. 
can you? And you can't celebrate the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is not served on Thursday at Giovanni's or at your house. The Lord's Supper is served Sunday morning and Sunday evening, if you, if you can't make it Sunday morning. Sunday morning, Sunday evening here. You have to come to church to take care of those two. But those other two, the Apostles' Doctrine and Prayers, there is teaching here. There's the Word of God here, and you can sit and listen, and you can be challenged and, you know, beat up sometimes and applauded other times. You know, this is one of those beat-up days, sorry. But, <laughs> but it, it, this is an important, important thing I'm saying here. The Apostles' Doctrine. But, you know, there's a whole lot you can do for yourself by way of feeding yourself that wouldn't involve another person in the world. Just you and your Bible and taking the time to eat some of that good food that God has for us. And we could say the same thing about prayer. Well, if you come here on Sunday morning, you're going to be involved in prayer. You get to listen to prayer. You may even say a prayer. That's good. That's wonderful. But prayer is also something that happens in private. And I, I, this is what I want to say about the Ephesian church because I believe this is where it was the private aspect of the apostles' doctrine and prayers that the Ephesian church had let go. They, they still showed up for their assembly. They, they, you know, they, hey, we're here to teach the word and we're going to stand for the truth. And uh, this fellowship, and we're going to have the Lord's Supper, and hey, you lead the prayer, and I'll listen, okay? And I'll say amen to half of your prayer, all right? Or maybe all of your prayer, if you're lucky. Uh, you know, we, but inside they were dying. They had lost their first love. And their first love is related to the first works. And the first works are right there. And it's the private aspect of those first works that was killing them. Busy, 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 doing all kinds of good things that just dying on the inside. God has a dream for us, and his dream for us is not that we, not just that we are busy doing good things, but his dream, first of all, is that we would be connected with him. People who have faith and who are connected will be busy doing God's will. But I tell you this, there are way too many Christians who have substituted religious busyness for real connection with God. That's a dangerous place to be. And I can tell you from my own experience, it doesn't work. If we're going to dream God's dream, we can't just be busy. We have to be connected. Is there anyone here today who is ready to make that connection with God? You've never been connected with him. You've never been, never made the profession of faith. You've never repented. You've never been baptized. But you think today might be the day. We're going to sing this hymn of invitation, and we're inviting you to come, to respond, come to the front, to say, yes, I do believe that Jesus is the Son of God. I'm ready to live the rest of my life for him, and I'm ready to die and be resurrected in the waters of baptism today. This would be a great day for all of us if someone made that move today.